Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedikin. This episode is brought to you by AMC+. With a name like AMC Plus, you'd expect the plus to mean more, right? Actually, it means better. AMC Plus is a premium streaming bundle for content from AMC Network's brands, including Shudder, Sundance Now, IFC, BBC America, Sundance TV, and IFC Films Unlimited. That means you can spend more quality time with content you love. You know, only the good stuff. We'll be back later in the episode to tell you about some of the amazing series you can binge on AMC Plus, where they're giving you only the good stuff. Okay. So, first of all, I'm going to start this episode off with a correction. Last week, I accidentally wrote down Grand Rapids, and in the episode, I said Michigan, when Judy Garland was actually born in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. I know this because a lot of people from Grand Rapids, Minnesota emailed or wrote comments correcting this mistake, and they were very upset about it because this is their claim to fame. As they should as be, they Desi. Told me. As they should be. <laughs> I'm very sorry. I did not know there was two Grand uh, Rapids. Here comes the defensiveness. <laughs> here it comes. So there you go. I get it. You have festivals. I had no idea, but we should be invited to the festival. <laughs> as, as penance, I think we should do a live show in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Absolutely. When we all are healthy and can do that again. When we have we the vaccine, that's going on the list. We'll be like the grand marshals of the Judy Garland celebration parade. <laughs> as if, as if they would, they would, you know what? Look, why, I why not? Know, I don't know what kind of celebrities they get. <laughs> Maybe we count. Okay. Let's not go too far. <laughs> let's not, let's not make it worse. Okay. But we're very sorry. Sorry for that. Thank you for the corrections. So, we left off last week with the birth of Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli's daughter, Liza, in March of 1946. And for the first six months of Liza, Liza's life, Judy was basically a stay-at-home mom with the help of a full-time round-the-clock nanny, of course. Mm. <laughs> in November of that year, she signed a five-year contract with MGM that doubled her weekly salary, putting her at the same level as other MGM stars. But as soon as she signed the contract, all of the resentment she felt towards the studio began to bubble up to the surface again. She still felt like the ugly ducking, duckling there and never got over being referred to as Louis B. Mayer's little hunchback. Judy began to blame Vincent for convincing her to sign the contract. She was certain she, would have, she could have left the studio behind, found Broadway stardom and the salvation of a live audience if she hadn't. She felt Minnelli had shown loyalty to MGM and not to her, and she was fucking bitter about it. All of this would come to a head when she began filming her next movie, The Pirate, which was directed by her husband. Despite her pledge, she was back on pills and she would end up missing 99 days of a 135-day rehearsal shooting schedule. And when she did show up, she would often be in a barbiturate stupor or on amphetamines, which made her very paranoid. Not only would she think everyone on set was out to get her, but she told Hedda Hopper in an interview that her mom, Ethel, was out to get her as well. 
The ultimate betrayal, however, however, would be when her husband began working closely and collaborating with her co-star, Gene Kelly. But let's start at the beginning of the filming of The Pirate and get into some more details. Every day, Vincent and Judy would drive together to the MGM lot to film, and he would get an earful every drive. Can you imagine? Like, she's working with her director, driving there with him, full of all this bitterness and rage. Sometimes she would get sick to her stomach just approaching the MGM lot, and she would make him drive her back home so she could call in sick. So he knew all of her bullshit that was going down at home, but had to go on set and act like everything was okay or normal. Uh, Just seems like a very stressful situation. For Vincent, this was a lot of pressure. This was like his chance to make up for his last picture that had flopped. He felt like everything was riding on the pirate, but at the same time, he was also her husband and he was deeply concerned for Judy. So his anxiety during the filming was literally around the clock. On Judy's end, she no longer felt like she had her protector, which is what she wanted in a husband. Now she saw Vincent as her authority figure, and he went from protector to persecutor. And much like her old days when everyone spied on her, including her mom, like when she was on set, now she felt like Vincent was her MGM spy in her own home. So this was just not great for their marriage. So... Vincent basically muddles through the filming of this movie, trying to keep everyone happy. He even encouraged Judy to go back to therapy, but she was in agony, even going to the Gershwin's house one night to be comforted, and she cried out in pain right in front of them. It was clear she was having the beginnings of a nervous breakdown to almost everyone who was near her. So they had been married for two years at this point, and their marriage was pretty much on the rocks. Only Luella Parsons was writing otherwise. She was publishing tidbits about how in love they still were at Judy's request. Judy is rumored to also have had a fling with young Yule Brenner at this time, but she wasn't the only one who was cheating. Towards the end of filming The Pirate, Judy came home early one night and began to get undressed to get into bed. But the only problem was the bed was filled with Vincent and a man they worked with. (gasps) And they were. So she walked in one night and she came in and her husband was in bed with another man? Yes. Oh no. Yes. She went into a violent rage when she like pulled the covers off and saw like these two naked guys in her bed. (laughs) Sorry, it's not funny. Uh, She ran into the bathroom and began slashing her wrist with a (gasps) razor before Vincent stopped her. Now she was okay. These were very superficial wounds and this would be something she does a lot. Like in the, in this episode, we'll hear her doing these superficial cuttings a lot. Uh, So obviously that's still very scary. She comes into the set days later with bandages on her wrist and she tells an actress on set um, what had happened. This actress responded with, you should have slashed his throat, not your wrist. Then this actress, uh, you know, had this juicy gossip and she spread the news everywhere, including to Jacqueline Suzanne, who would will write the, the book Valley of the Dolls one day and uses this incident in her book for the character of Neely O'Hara, who is loosely based on Judy. Two days after the pirate finished shooting, Luella Parsons announced that Judy Garland had suffered a total mental collapse. Judy checked into a psychiatric facility and Vincent told baby Liza that mommy was going away for a little bit, but will be back soon. So Judy is in this treatment facility and she's forbidden to see anyone, including her 16 month old daughter, Liza, but she begged and begged and begged and did manage to get a visit um, from Liza after beginning treatment. After Liza left that night, Judy said she had 
a quote, she had many blue moments in her life, but after Liza left, I truly thought I would die of anguish. Now, a reminder at this time, there was no such things as like antidepressants. Those didn't come out until 1957. So there were very few ways to treat to treat depression at this time. People were basically like put on bed rest and like, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. The therapist treating Judy was named Harold Cupper and he recommended the best in the biz to her to treat her. But that meant Judy had to go to the Berkshires in Massachusetts, which obviously is very isolated. Judy agreed to do this, but she insisted that Dr. Cupper come with her and it basically hindered her progress since he would sort of run interference for Judy when she didn't want to do something that the doctors were recommending there. So it kind of defeated the whole purpose. He eventually goes back after the other psychiatrist kind of scolds him and Judy follows shortly after. When she returns to LA, people are like, how did it go? Why'd you leave? And she kind of smart acidly replied that the Berkshires were just too quiet for her. (laughs) Now, this doctor who was treating her named Dr. Robert Knight responded in the press as well. And he said, when you don't have a lot of noise around you, the noise inside becomes overwhelming. That's Uh, a very true statement. That's a very true statement. Well, I mean, for someone dealing with uh, mental issues. Yeah, he owned her ass with that. (laughs) It's like, yeah, you don't like the quiet because it makes you have to fucking deal with your problems. Right. And she wanted to go back to LA where a lot of noise was happening, especially because she was going to begin filming a new picture, Irving Berlin's Easter Parade. Now, everyone marveled at Judy's fast recovery from her nervous breakdown. She didn't really recover. She basically had a little break and she was back to living with Vincent, but all was not well. Vincent was set to direct Easter Parade, but Judy went behind his back to Arthur Freed's office at MGM and requested that he be replaced. Vincent was obviously shocked and disheartened that his wife had basically cut him out. Now, it might have been bad for their marriage, but it probably was the right decision for Judy since the atmosphere on the set ended up being very relaxed. She loved the director, Charles Walters, and uh, she even was working with Irving Berlin, who everyone sort of was afraid of but not Judy, like when he would try to correct her phrasing when she sang one of his songs, she would say to him, I sing them, you write them (laughs) and like put him in this place. But he kind of loved it. Like since everyone was always so like respectful of him. So he liked her sass. Now, considering that Judy most definitely wasn't fully recovered, she definitely needed to be in the safe environment, adored and understood by everyone. Another good, um, another stroke of good luck Sounds like bad luck, though. Gene Kelly, who was to be her co-star, broke his ankle in rehearsal. That was her co-star in The Pirate, who she did not really get along with because he was kind of a showboat. And just you can imagine Gene Kelly, even though he's super hot, is probably like an annoying person to be around when you're having a nervous breakdown. <laughs> like Mr. Perfect. Oh, because he's... Do you know what I mean? Like Mr. Entertainer, who everything <laughs> is so easy for him. And she's like in this existential crisis nonstop. Uh, He was replaced by Fred Astaire, who came out of retirement to do the movie. I think the main thing that made it better was Fred Astaire was very used to working with women and he was very good at working with women. So he knew exactly how to make Judy comfortable and make her feel very confident. Uh, So it was just a better working relationship. This is no... No, no slander towards Gene Kelly, who I love. And I, like I said, is super hot (laughs) and talented. So... He was worked so well with Judy that she actually thought that a love affair was all but certain to happen between them. Unfortunately for her, Astaire was the rare faithful Hollywood husband, so it never happened. 
The movie was a massive hit. It was MGM's biggest grossing movie of 1948. So they quickly put together another movie with a star in Garland called The Barclays of Broadway. And everything was coming together on that film. It seemed like it was going to be another smash hit. But Judy quickly fell into another depression and began calling in sick constantly. This time, MGM did not cater to her. They sent her a certified letter saying she was not only being replaced, but her contract was being suspended. Sounds like MGM went to Al-Anon. Yeah. (laughs) No, they set up some boundaries. (laughs) Adding insult to injury for Judy was that they brought Ginger Rogers out of retirement to replace her and paid her double what Judy was (gasps) to be paid. So she was quickly crying to Luella Parsons that she had lost the greatest role of her career. Now, Judy did some bitchy things, though. Like, she would go visit the set and try to be, like, Miss Popularity. Uh, and they actually banned her from the set because she was making everyone uncomfortable, oh especially God. Ginger Rogers. Wait, so she was just showing up like, hi, guys. Hey, guys. What you guys doing without me? <laughs> Is she doing good? Was she, was she, like, bringing everyone coffee? And everyone's like, oh, my God, thanks. It was, it was kind of just, like... So now you show up to set on time. And <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, it was definitely kind of like pissing on her territory or something. It was right. just a weird thing to do because it's not Ginger Rogers' fault. Uh, she did make amends with MGM. And after a brief appearance in a movie called Good Old Summertime, which is actually Liza's first screen appearance, next up for her was the starring role in Annie Get Your Gun, something that Arthur Freed, sorry, Arthur Freed had purchased the rights for just for Judy as a starring vehicle. Production of that began in March of 1949, the same month that Judy, fi- Judy finally announced her separation from Vincent uh, his the final straw for her for her was that he she caught him throwing her pills away. Oh, she, so she was like, "Now you're out of here." He wasn't really out; he still stayed around. So uh, this is another pattern of Judy's announcing separations and divorces, and then sticking with the guy and doing that multiple times. So more trouble was on the horizon, though. Freed hired Busby Berkeley to direct Annie Get Your Gun. And if you recall in the last episode, working with Busby Berkeley was the worst experiences of Judy's life. She did several films with him before Meet Me in St. Louis. I'm sorry, Meet Meet Me in St. Louis. Uh, And during those uh, years, she increased her pill use dramatically because it was so stressful to work with such a demanding dick of a director and her erratic behavior and calling in sick and getting migraines and et cetera really escalated as well. So this was not a good sign. This was a big and blustery role. Judy was not accustomed to performing that. She was also intimidated by Ethel Merman, who originated the role on Broadway and sort of made her mark on that role. How could you not be intimidated by Ethel? Yeah. So she's going into it with like very little confidence. The last thing she needs is a director who saps all that confidence even more. Uh, And a director's job on a role in, in this sort of situation would have been to guide her you know, as a struggling actor to kind of find her own way of performing it. And that just was not possible with Busby Berkeley in the director chair. Judy's confidence was basically shattered at this point, just from filming the few things they got to film. He, uh, when she would screen her daily, she was even more mortified by what she had seen. Gone was the great beauty that she had sort of discovered in Meet Me in St. Louis, she was back to what she considered the pudgy pigskin parade look that she hated as a child, and she felt uglier than ever. I mean, she's basically playing like a cow, cow, like Annie... 
you know, Annie Oakley is not like a glam queen. Right. <laughs> so she was seeing herself and it's just not the most flattering costumes or look. It's not a glamorous role, but it's a fun role, obviously. So her bad behavior resurfaced and her depression increased. They eventually fire Busby because the footage he filmed just sucked. It had nothing to do with Judy. They just didn't like what he was doing with the movie. And they brought in Charles Walters, who was the director that Judy liked. He brought Judy in first day and tried to work with her to find her place in the movie. But at that point, she was already like exhausted and defeated. The higher-ups were panicking now and decided that Judy needed to go. She eventually got fired by letter and was despondent. The role was given to Betty Hutton. So she lost this huge role. Um, There's a ton of... She actually recorded the whole soundtrack before filming started. And there's a ton of images online if you want to see of her dressed in different costumes for Annie. Um, But definitely a very famous role that she lost um, for sure. On May 29th, 1949, she was suspended from MGM again. When approached by the press, Judy said flipply, I've been a bad girl. (laughs) (laughs) Making matters even worse, the public was finally onto Judy's problems. A Hollywood scandal rag had printed numerous blind items about her drug abuse and the studios all pretty much knew they had a drug addict on her hand on their hands. She had more than five doctors prescribing her pills. And not only that, she became famous. Like you couldn't invite her to a Hollywood party. She would raid people's medicine cabinets and steal all of their prescription drugs. Like famous people's houses, she would be like, not using the downstairs bathroom. She'd be like, I'll go up to the private bathroom and like literally take all of their prescription pills. And that became like a wide known open secret, I guess, or whatever. So she was taking so many pills at this time that even her baby Liza would recoil because an odor would emit from her. And that was one of the side effects of um, peraldehyde, which was a drug she was taking. I read it. It's like, um, it's something that people trying to get off alcohol will take. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a knockout drug. If you have like uh, shivers and and tremors. shakes. Yeah, stuff like that. So it kind of like knocks you out. So I guess people would use it as like a knockout drug. At at this point, she's 26 years old, by the way. And boy, I looked at a lot of pictures of Judy Garland this week. She did not age well, the poor thing. Like, it's unbelievable when you see pictures of her, how how rough it gets for her. Even at 26, she was already kind of looking middle-aged. Um, so that's just, a, it's an indication of how she was not treating her body very well. Now, ironically, it was Louis B. Mayer who was determined to help her. He decided that she needed to be out of Hollywood and he paid for her to stay at a hospital on the East Coast to recover. During her stay, she really got the rest she needed. Now, another thing, this was a regular hospital. She refused to um, admit that she was suffering from any kind of mental illness and basically was kind of like, I just need rest. I just need to be in a hospital where they're taking care of me so I can rest, like that kind of thing. She would even uh, visit a children's hospital regularly that was located next door. She did thrive in these restful situations. Um, In particular, she was drawn to one girl who was from an abusive family and was in the hospital. She hadn't spoken in two years. When Judy was cured, I use that in quotation marks, to go back to Hollywood, she went to say goodbye to the children before catching her train. That girl yelled out for her not to leave, saying she loved her Judy. Aww. That was the first time she spoke in two years. Like wow. Even when Judy would spend time with her, Judy would just talk while she sat there silent. 
Uh, everyone was crying when this happened. And obviously Judy ended up missing her train because she said she can't leave her now. She's finally speaking. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So now Judy's back in LA and she is working on her next movie, Summerstock. But the studio had worried she got had gotten too healthy, 15 pounds too healthy. She immediately began a crash diet and the pill popping was back as well. Then the migraine started and then Judy stopped showing up to set on time or at all. She managed to make it through the picture, but got very wasted at the rap party and kind of embarrassed herself in front of everyone by sobbing into, into one of the musical director's laps, saying she was a fat slob and so ugly oh. and untalented that people were going to eventually find her out. Now, Summerstock wasn't done, and this made people nervous because they thought they had just gotten through the movie, but they realized they needed to film like one more sort of show-stopping scene to end it, and they had to call Judy back to perform this number. She had already gone off on vacation in, I think, Carmel, California, but she agreed to come back only if the song could be Get Happy. After some bumps in the road, Judy, who was now rested and a you know, from her vacation and actually had lost weight. Cause when she isn't under the pressure of the studio, she actually just loses weight easily. Cause she's not even trying like, so she comes back and she, people say like in this scene, she actually looks way better than she does in the rest of the movie. And some people even thought it was filmed at an earlier time in her life, but it was just her rested and not under the pressure of the studio that made her look so much better. She performed this number, which is like a knockout. And that pretty much made this pick. It's one of her most famous scenes and the movie is not so much famous. It's also the final scene she would ever film at MGM. 
Now, she would start to film another picture, but was quickly replaced and suspended once again after sort of showing up late or not showing up at all. She was distraught this time because now she knew that the, the suspension was basically it. It was the third time she had to be had been suspended. She was basically fired from MGM, her home, since she was 13 years old. Now, she was so upset about this that she actually had to be sedated and at one point ran down a hall, locked herself inside a bathroom. Vincent, who was still living with her at this point, broke down the door and she had broken a glass and slashed her own throat. Now, like I mentioned before, this was a very superficial wound, but obviously very frightening. Like Vincent had to also be calmed down after going through this. The next day, the papers ran headlines about Judy Garland. Jar, I'm sorry, Judy Garland cutting her throat after being fired by MGM. By September of 1950, she was kind of better and her and MGM had settled things. She was officially released from her contract and actually started feeling good about her future. In December of 1950, Minnelli and Garland announced their divorce. This time it was really done. So Judy was starting 1951 with a clean slate and she even had a new love in her life. This time it was a man she felt would fight for her, the loud and boisterous Hollywood figure Sid Luft, who would save her career at least temporarily. In 1951, at the age of 28, everyone was wondering what was next for Judy Garland. Her answer? A four-week engagement at the Palladium in London. Judy would be returning to her vaudeville roots. The format would be her life and songs, um, starting with You Made Me Love You, To Get Happy. On March 30th, she embarked on an ocean liner to London, and when she arrived, newspapers were quick to point out that she was, quote, tubby. Ugh. Yeah. Just said, Judy was like, pretty good spirits about it. She said, I may be awfully fat, but I feel awfully good. So good for her. Sid Luff flew to London to be there on April 9th, which was opening night. As Judy walked on stage that night, she said she felt like she was walking to her execution. Now, an interesting thing with Judy, I think this is common. She had like extreme stage fright, even though she loved performing on stage. It was always sort of scary for her, especially after doing movies for so long. She hadn't done a live performance in a very long time like this. So this is a legendary um, performance, her at the Palladium. Yeah. She she really gave an incredible performance. Um, it's really a tribute to her courage and the audience who were there are just super supportive. I mean, one thing about her is she has fans who really want her to succeed and you can just kind of feel it in some of these later live performances. Like she stumbles over her words in the intro and the audience are like, don't worry, you're doing great. Like they're literally yelling out like, praise and like encouragement to her during one exit she landed on her ass i'll post a pic because it's kind of a funny cute pic her musical accompanist buddy came over and picked her up and judy like said to the audience that was one of my most ungraceful exits ever and the audience was like roaring every time she cracked a joke they kind of liked when she was real by the time she got to over the rainbow the audience was just rapturous they were in tears giving her the biggest ovation i'm sorry ovation the palladium manager said he had ever heard judy was very emotional and put it all into her engagement which sold out two shows a night and a matinee and two matinees per week for multiple weeks now after this she did a short european tour judy and said knew she had to do the same in the usa he had an idea um that if he could get rko RKO on board, 
um, they had, he had this like great idea. They owned this rundown old vaudeville theater called the Palace Theater in New York City. And he had an idea to revive it with a Judy Garland engagement. And Archeo went for it. They literally had to like hang new chandeliers and completely refurbish this old rundown theater. Um, the engagement was announced to begin October 16th. And Judy was like, thrilled because she would finally see her name in lights on Broadway. She had never done Broadway before. Now the Palladium was sort of like a test run and this, this palace show was going to be even bigger and the sex, I'm sorry, the success of it was also bigger. Every night the audience and Judy were left in tears. It was so emotional. One reviewer clocked a standing ovation at over three minutes. That's a long fucking time. Yeah. <laughs> like when you think about absolutely three minutes sounds short, but when you like time it out, you're like, they just kept fucking applauding. Right. <laughs> and like, okay, it could stop here. It'd still be long. Nope. You're going to keep going. So yeah, I mean, that's what she brought out in her fans. Her four week engagement turned into 12 weeks. It was a sold out smash hit. It ended up being 19 weeks, 184 shows, and finally ended in February of 1952. Next up, she did the Los Angeles Philharmonic Theater, which was also really stressful because she would be performing in front of all of Hollywood's elite, like who were all attending, just everyone, including Louis B. Mayer. It was another smash hit. Even old MGM boss Arthur Arthur Freed was seen blubbering during Over the Rainbow. She had just made a massive comeback. She had plans to do a national tour, but she unexpectedly found out she was pregnant and her and Sid left quickly married in June of 1952. Their daughter, Lorna, was born in November. Now, Sid was not a popular figure in Hollywood and Judy started seeing some signs of why that was. He had really bad money habits. He was like a little bit of like I don't want to say scam artist, but he was not good with money. He spent a ton of his money that they earned together on these tours on himself, but would scrimp when it came to paying employees who worked to help create these stage shows. He also started taking over finances, which all of her friends were kind of like, Judy, like, don't do that. Hire like a money manager. Uh, He was an alcoholic. Something I find extra gross is the fact that he wasn't paying child support for his son from his first marriage, but had plenty of money to buy racehorses. Oh yeah. He liked to gamble as well. So, Judy loved this guy. It kind of reminded me of um, Elizabeth Taylor and Mike Todd. Like she found this kind of gruff, you know, man after sort of being with lesser, like, or like wimpier guys maybe. And she just was like so turned on by it. So she actually thrived. He figured out what something, what something that no one else had figured out. She actually loved being left alone. Like I mentioned how she would thrive when she was on vacation and she wanted to do what she wanted to do. So he even encouraged her to do things like, you know, eat. He was like, the audience doesn't care if you have second helping of mashed potatoes. <laughs> like, so he like, he like let Judy run the show. And I think she felt so fucking controlled her whole life that she really liked that about him. Judy would tell her friends she knew about his money issues, but didn't care. And Sid delivered what Judy secretly wanted again, a movie contract. The pair signed with Warner Brothers as producers. First up on their slate was a musical version of A Star is Born. But as always, Judy had a few bumps to get through first. Number one being her postpartum depression after the birth of Lorna, which seemed to be 
compounded by the fact that Sid was out of town when Lorna was being born. He was in another town watching his racehorses while his daughter was born. And that just sent Judy like she really wanted him there, obviously. She once again did things like make superficial cuts on her neck and she just had really bad postpartum depression, but she kind of always had it. So it just got exasperated. Just as Judy was coming out of that funk, she was hit with another blow. Her mom, Ethel, collapsed and died of a heart attack unexpectedly at the age of 59. So this is all happening right before she begins filming A Star is Born. Uh, Now, to say the mother-daughter relationship was estranged at the end of Judy's life, I mean, I'm sorry, Ethel's life is an understatement. Judy was mortified by Ethel's behavior in later years, including she tried to stage mom Liza like Judy's mom tried to stage mom Liza and she's like not having that. Ethel hated Sid and disapproved of their marriage. So that was like another thing. She basically had cut her mom out of her life. Once she cut the mom out, the mom started selling stories to um, tabloids about how ungrateful Judy was and kind of giving in all this inside info about what a fucked up brat she was. She was banned from visiting the hospital when Lorna was born. But after um, Ethel died, uh, people went to get a quote from Judy and she only had to say, well, I didn't want her to die. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So bad blood. Judy didn't really have time to grieve anyway. She was set to start her biggest film since Wizard of Oz. And I want to preface this by saying Judy Garland's version of A Star is Born is one of my favorite movies of all time. I love this movie. (laughs) Do you like this movie? Of course. It's so good. I like... I think I like like every A Star is Born. They're all, They're all different. pretty good. They're all different. So when this movie was set to be remade, uh, it had a lot to live up to. The 1937 movie starring Janet Gaynor and Frederick March as Vicki Lester and Norman Maine was already considered a classic. Like People loved that version. So Judy went into this knowing it was do or die. This had to not only be good, but great. Warner Brothers felt the same and spared no expense hiring the best of the best, including director George Gokur, uh, and songs by Harold Arlen and Ira Gershwin. Her co-star was actor James Mason, who was not super well-known at the time, but very respected. Ten days after filming started, Warner Brothers halted production and decided that they would film in CinemaScope, so everything they filmed had to be scrapped. This was a brand new technology at the time that offered a more immersive experience when you're like visually, but this meant everyone had to learn a whole new technology like very quickly and they had to rebuild all the sets because the way the camera lens picked up things, they had to like make them higher and not as wide just Mm -hmm. based on, so they had to do all this stuff very quickly. Despite more onset antics by Judy, Kukor knew her performance was something magical and heartfelt. When it finished shooting in March of 1954, everyone was blown away by Judy's performance. They knew that A Star is Born was worth all the struggles. Only one thing was missing in Kukor's mind, a song number that would show everyone why Vicki Lester was a star. They decided on a medley that would emulate Judy's stage performance. And on June 30th, production began on Born in a, the Born on a, in a Trunk segment that would be 15 minutes long, but just showcase Judy like at her vaudeville finest. Still one problem that nagged everyone was the movie was very long, even after tons of editing, the film still, um, still clocked in at over three hours. Despite some nitpicking about the length, almost everyone agreed A Star Star is Born was incredible and a tour de force performance by Judy. The film opened in October and was a smash hit. 
almost instantly. But Warner Brothers seemed determined to undermine the success. When theater owners complained that they couldn't show as many times a day as a two-hour movie and would lose money, Harry Warner, Jack's brother, decided the film had to be cut. Now, Kukor was away already filming his next movie, and no one knows who cut the movie, but they basically just chopped 30 minutes out of this movie, and a lot of what they chopped were scenes that had smaller moments that kind of explained the emotional aspects of the characters' lives. Now, critics had already seen the original showing, so now they're seeing this cut version, and there were headlines like, a star is shorn. Like People were like, what the fuck did you do to this perfect movie? The cut film sections were believed to have been destroyed, but in the early 80s, some of the missing footage was recovered that was just found in a Warner Brother vault, and a new cut was made, but just a total disaster, this wow. whole editing process. Despite the movie being a huge hit, it was so expensive at $5 million that it barely made a profit for Warner Brothers, and a lot of that has to do with the cut. Box office receipts plummeted when the new version hit like theaters, and theater, theater owners now were complaining and outraged that they hadn't been offered a choice between the original and the cut version. Despite all the negativity, Judy was considered a shoo-in for the Best Actress Academy Award in 1955. The night before the ceremony, March 29th, Judy was in the hospital having just given birth to her son, Joey Luft. Everyone was so certain she would win. Press were sent to her hospital room the night of the ceremony. But the happy reaction they were hoping to catch never happened as Grace Kelly's name was announced. Cameras basically started packing up and leaving right when her name was announced. That must be the worst fucking feeling. Oh my God. Isn't that like awful? Well, I guess I have this son. Yeah. Everyone widely considers this like one of the biggest upsets and like in most insane decisions ever. I mean, no offense to Grace Kelly. Groucho Marx called it the greatest robbery since Brinks. And even Grace Kelly's dad issued a statement. What? He said he he seemed embarrassed and said maybe there should have been two awards. Oh my one God. for Judy too. Okay, if I was Grace, I'd be like, Dad. Seriously, like, Dad, you could have said nothing. Yeah. <laughs> But that's how extreme this loss went down. Like people were like, what? Now people blamed Warner Brothers botched edit and lack of support for her loss. Even the man that got away lost best song to three coins in the fountain, which is like insane as well. And Judy just took it as the sign that the industry was still against her. Like she just couldn't win with them. She was devastated by the loss and the failure of her big screen return made matters. I'm sorry, make and the failure of her big screen return. Other thing, making things bad, they were broke. Sid was being sued for back child support and a shitload of unpaid bills. Judy would spend most of the 1950s singing for her supper, literally, on a nonstop performance schedule to support everyone and to pay off everything that they owed. Luckily, TV came in and saved the day. CBS offered her $100,000 for a single performance of her Palace Theater Act, and Judy, reluctant to do TV before, jumped at the chance. 40 million people watched, and CBS signed her up for several more performances. Her confidence got an additional boost when she was signed for some shows in Las Vegas, earning $55,000 a week. She also made a triumphant return to the Palace Theater in New York City, but when 1957 rolled around, her streak of good luck came to an end once again. 
Hey, we're back to tell you about a few more things exclusive to AMC Plus that we think you'll love, including the next true crime series you'll obsess over, Des, starring Doctor Who's David Tennant as real-life serial killer Dennis Nilsson. Want to get lost in addictive, bingeable drama? Check out Riviera, a Sundance Now original starring Julia Stiles. Catch up on season one and season two of the sun-soaked thriller, and don't miss season three, which is now streaming. If you're looking for something that Metro calls more than a touch of Tarantino, watch the new powerful drama Gangs of London. AMC Plus is available on all your devices, ad-free and on demand. Watch new series, episodes, movies, and fresh content anytime, anywhere. AMC Plus, only the good stuff. Sign up today at amcplus.com. That's A-M-C-P-L-U-S dot com. So Judy eventually loses her lucrative TV contract after a dispute with CBS. The Luffs sue CBS, and in the process, a reporter was held in contempt of court when she refused to reveal her anonymous CBS source that was slamming Judy's bad behavior in the press. Dorothy Kilgallen quipped, I never thought I'd live to see the day someone was thrown in the jug for saying Judy Garland had problems. Uh, she did perform throughout the year, but 1957 ended with another flurry of bad headlines when Judy got into a fight with an unruly audience member at a Vegas show, telling him to shut up. He said to her, why don't you shut up? And she said, you know, I don't have to sing for you. And he said, I don't have to listen. Wow. She huffed off stage and left her Vegas contract behind. Despite that incident, she continued to perform to sold out crowds with record-breaking box offices, including at the Coconut Grove. Now, during the 50s, Judy and Sid had bought a house in Holmby Hills and were members of the Holmby Hills Rat Pack, led by Bogey and Bacall. This was before the Sinatra Rat Pack. They had the name first. (laughs) This neighborhood sounds wild. We talked about it in the Nat King Cole episode. Holmby Hills? No, No. not Holmby Hills. Oh, Hancock Park was what we were talking about, right? Okay. Yes. But you're talking about Holmby Hills. This is where Hugh Hefner used to live. Yes. So Holmby Hills is like a very exclusive, rich neighborhood. Is it, is it kind of by Beverly Hills? It's part of Beverly Hills. This neighborhood sounds wild. Um, Liza's best friend was Cheryl Crane, Lana Turner's daughter Mm -hmm. who shot her boyfriend at some point. Bing Crosby boys were hellions in the hood, creating havoc. And Judy's alcoholism had fully bloomed here. Their house was very famous for having loud arguments at all hours, all the time. Uh, she loved vodka and a cheap wine called Blue Nun. Have Blue you heard of Nun. Blue Nun? No. I never heard of it either. But she gets that often throughout the book. Like people will be like, and here's a case of Blue Nun, Judy. <laughs> it was like on her rider or something. Uh, she had also expanded her drug roster and and, and included now Secanol, Nebutal, Demerol, Dexamil, and Tuniol. Do you know any, all of these? She loves pills. She has a lot of pills now. Her finances, though, were in shambles, despite all she was earning, because her husband, Sid Leff, was a huge fucking loser. <laughs> this guy just, like, spent money, lost money, and just kept her thinking that, like, everything was A-OK. So she was spending, like, whatever, too. This guy's so annoying. Um, Yeah. Just very annoying. Does he even have a job? Here's the thing. I tried to look up like what he was and it's like, he's like manager producer. Like he doesn't really have a job. So like, basically he's taking her money being like, I have a project. He's that, like her manager. 
Right, but he's taking her money, telling her like, babe, I have this amazing investment opportunity. And then just never showing up with the money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't like know. he always has a quote unquote investment opportunity, but it's really just going to the racetrack. Absolutely, it's a horse. <laughs> so, not surprisingly, I mean, their marriage is shit, but she's still with him. She also begins having affairs. She had one with James Mason as well as Frank Sinatra. Now, in the past, Judy had been known to speak highly of oral sex, claiming it to be healthy. But Wait, <laughs> oral sex for her? I think. I think for men. Uh, like blowjobs. But yeah, I would like to thank both. So she says giving blowjobs is healthy. Yes, but she it's described as oral sex, but it doesn't specify. I just needed to know which is which is it. Because I would it would make more sense to be like, oh, it's very healthy to get eaten out. Well, absolutely. Now I'll get into it a little bit more. So after some time fooling around with Frank Sinatra, though, she began to complain to her assistant, Harry Ruby, that he only wanted blowjobs. Now I've discussed this with you. That there's a certain type of guy like Rudy Giuliani Ew, who, I, who I think only want blowjobs. Like there's certain guys who I think only want blowjobs. They don't want because they don't want to interact with the woman. <laughs> they just want to get off and they want to have like a not not like a intimacy with them or something. And I believe this about Frank Sinatra. He fits my stereotype in my head of someone who would only want blowjobs from women. Even Judy Garland. Now Harry said, "What's wrong with that?" Uh, to Judy, I guess, to be funny. And she said, nothing, but you got to fuck every once in a while. <laughs> Can you imagine Judy Garland just blowing Frank Sinatra and he never fucks her? Ugh. I'm offended for her. Now, she does begin an affair with this assistant. I guess he's like, hey, she loves giving head. I need to hop on that train. She also apparently was seeing a few women during this time. When Ruben asked her about that, she said, when you've eaten everything in the world there is to eat, you got to find new things to eat. <laughs> how did I so not? that. How did I, how did I not invent that line? Honestly, when I read it, I was like, this is brilliant and I would love this cross-stitched on something. <laughs> that is the best line ever. So Sid is still her main man. And you look, they fight a lot, but they have mastered the art of the hate fuck. <laughs> like that is their pattern. In 1958, even that had become too much to bear though, Judy, though for Judy. And she filed for divorce, alleging physical abuse. Now this, like I mentioned before, this is one of the first times that she files for divorce. They reconcile, uh, and this happens multiple times. The 50s ended with Judy being hospitalized. Her weight gain had actually hidden that she was suffering from a severe case of hepatitis. She actually hadn't gained weight. She was very bloated because her fucking liver wasn't processing things. Uh, This is obviously brought on by her drug and alcohol abuse, um, she was hospitalized for almost two months and came near death several times during this hospitalization. When she left, her doctor told her she may only have five years to live. And if she managed to live longer, she would probably be an invalid and un- unable to perform. Judy's reaction was she didn't care. Finally, the pressure would be off. I mean, that seems how she kind of like deals with these like awful things. It's like, finally, like I'll be free. Uh, but not singing was not an option for Judy Garland. In her heart, she felt like without her voice, she was nothing. In 1960, Judy decided she wanted to leave Hollywood behind and move to England. But perhaps even bigger, an even bigger move was leaving her husband, agent 
husband, whatever, Sid Luff once and for all and signing with Freddie Fields and David Beagleman and their new agency, CMA, Creative Management Association, which will eventually go on to form ICM. She quickly had success with them. They signed um, a touring contract as well as getting her a small part in Judgment at Nuremberg. 1961 was another good year for her. She performed all over, including at the Hollywood Bowl, but the peak was her 1961 performance at Carnegie Hall. That is legendary. For two and a half hours, it's just Judy on stage singing nothing more, and she had the audience spellbound. Her voice was flawless, but the emotional impact was what really took it over the top. Once again, she showed the power of human perseverance. I mean, who doesn't love seeing someone who is so flawed you know, triumph over all of these obstacles. This was just a few weeks shy of her 39th birthday. And she finally felt like she had shown the full depth of her talent in this performance. This is another iconic performance. There's an album you can listen to. Uh, I'm sure there's video clips. I didn't check those out. I wanted to, but I had to write this. I kept wanting to like watch all these clips, but I was like, I can't like spend 15 minutes on each clip, like doing this or whatever. Now, she's still married at the time to Sid Luff, but that's all but over. She no longer needs him because her agents, Fields and Beagleman, are kind of like the man in her life at this point. But the final nail in the coffin is when she told Sid she was bringing the kids with her when she moved back to London. He refused. They have a standoff at the Stanhope Hotel in New York City before she's leaving for London. Judy basically sets it up. She invites him into her hotel room, provokes him to a point of violence. And when furniture is heard being turned over, police bust in and she basically gets the kids because she claims that he's too violent to leave um, the kids with him. She flies off to London and officially declares the 11 year old marriage over. When people ask why she said it would take 11 years to explain what went wrong. In London, she stars in I Could Go On Singing with actor Dirk Bogard. Um, This is a really small movie. She has the same problem she always has, showing up late um, and not being at her best 100% all the time. She also has a suicide attempt. Um, She tries to overdose with sleeping pills. They managed to get through this movie once again somehow, and Judy's performance is widely praised. It's kind of like a Star is Born-esque type story. She's a performer. Uh, there's a guy, etc. This is her final screen performance. In 1963, her TV show, The Judy Garland Show, began its run, and it wouldn't last long due to a series of fuck-ups on the network's part, but a, um, a lot of famous clips from this show are online, including appearances with Barbara Streisand, Ethel Merman, and Liza, as well as her little kids who came on for a Christmas episode and sang Christmas songs with her. Judy also began an affair at this time with David Beagleman, her manager. Now here's where things get kind of interesting. She also began seeing Sid Luft again at this time, and he began to uncover the fact that David was embezzling from Judy. Wait, her manager? Yes. Now, this is the same David Beagleman who would be the central figure in the Columbia Pictures embezzlement scandal in the late 70s that was started off with a forged check um, from Cliff or to Cliff Robertson or something like that. We'll cover this story yeah. one day, but this is the same guy who is in that scandal. So... Sid Luft hires an attorney to audit her income from the time Bigelman re- began representing her with, with Freddie Fields. It was discovered that several hundred thousand dollars were missing, much of it 
written in checks to cash and endorsed by Bigelman at various casinos in Las Vegas. Other entries in, in her accounts showed large sums paid for protection that were also approved by Bagelman, but Garland had no personal security. In addition to that, a 1963 Cadillac convertible given to Garland as partial payment for an appearance on Jack Parr's show was titled to Bagelman. Garland never even knew that that was part of her compensation. He just took this car from her and never told her. Now, because... Oh, yeah. Remember when she OD'd in London while filming the movie with Dirk Bogart? Mm -hmm. He told Garland that a photo existed of her partially nude having her stomach pumped in a hospital emergency after that overdose and that blackmailers were demanding $50,000 to turn over all the pictures and negatives. She paid rather than face adverse publicity. She paid her manager this? Well, she thought she was playing the back the blackmailers, but it turned out that the check went to a holding company with a business address owned by Bigelman and was further traced to a personal account that he also controlled. Wow. So he basically scammed her out of that money. Horrible. That's awful. Now, rather than confront her at the time... Um, because he was playing such a pivotal role in her show business reemergence, she decided to eat the financial losses up based upon the promises of millions coming in from these deals that they were getting her. Um, but yeah, they eventually ended up suing him for punitive damages, but due to her dire financial situation at the time, she settled with them for royalties owed to her by capital rec- records that they had basically collected but were holding so she settled for like money she was already owed basically but that's how she got it like right they were like whatever put a hold on it so just a like fucked up situation but she was like the first people to be scammed by this guy in 1964 she met an aspiring actor named mark heron and he was actually in a long-term relation with another actor named Henry Brendan, but left him to be with Judy. Before Judy, he had been in a relationship with Tallulah Bankhead and Charles Lawton. Oh. The wh- shit sandwich icon. <laughs> Charles Lawton and Tallulah Bankhead. Yes, and two, Judy Garland. <laughs> two Hollywood crime scene favorites. Yeah, we have Patreon bonus episodes on both of them, right? Yes, we yeah. do. I they're, highly they're hel- recommend them. They're really funny ones. Yeah, so this guy uh, has some interesting lovers. At this time, Judy begins a kind of world tour, and it does not go well. Mark travels with her to Australia, where she bombs so badly that Australia literally hates her. <gasps> and she's leaving. She calls them hicks. Like oh. It's like very bad blood. Don't We have a lot of Australian listeners. We do not feel that way. Right. Next up, she goes to Hong Kong, and... They're in like a 22, like a really high rise when a typhoon hits, which has like 90 mile per hour winds. So it's really scary. Judy, of course, thinks she's going to die. She asks Mark to commit suicide with her. And he's like, "Uh, no. Then she goes and ODs on Tuniol and went into a 15 hour coma after Mark, Mark like rushes her to the hospital in this 90 per mile per hour wind like pushing her in a wheelchair because there's no there's no like transportation to take them he has to like almost because they're in the middle of a typhoon yes but she's gonna die otherwise uh she ends up waking up from her coma he tells friends well she's being mean as hell again again so i guess she's feeling better Judy's behavior gets really bad from this point forward. The final five months of 1964 ends on a high note, including two performances at the Palladium with rising young star, daughter Liza. Liza's already uh, working and kind of getting famous. She also adds a new drug to her repertoire, Ritalin. 
Oh. Yeah. Despite the disastrous world tour, Judy was still performing live and her shows were kind of a mixed bag, either genius or completely dis- disappointing. One fan-, fan group that was always there no matter what were gay men. So much so that snooty critics began disparaging that uh, aspect of her audience. They and- were disparaging the fact that she had a big gay fan, yes. fan base? Yes. Yes. I, and I have no idea why. One critic, critic, um, he's very famous, William Golden, spent a whole article complaining about her fans and referring to them, quote, at, I'm sorry, referring to them as, quote, a flutter of fags. Another newspaper called them the boys in tight trousers. So, yeah, I don't really get it. Homophobia, like there's no reason to hate that particular well, audience member other than that. Right. Like, <laughs> That's they're very devoted and like loyal audience. Uh, I don't, I don't know what the problem is, except for these people are fucking homophobic assholes. Now her stage performance was were pretty much the only work she could get. No one wanted to take a risk on her, including Jerry Herman, who passed on her and went with Angela Lansbury to star in Mame. In May of 1965, her divorce from Sid was finally finalized, and in November she married Mark. In 1966, just. Judy really began suffering mood swings and was thought and was sort of like everyone had betrayed her. Now she's in her grievance stage of life. Uh, Sid had betrayed her. David Beagleman had betrayed her. Everyone had betrayed her. Mark, her husband, she began referring to as a, quote, faggot in in public. That's how she would call him. She treated him like fucking shit. And people speculate now that she may have been bipolar, uh, but obviously was not being treated for anything like that. While in the past, her anger was always directed at herself. Now it was all outward, baby. Like she was fucking mad at everyone and everyone had wronged her. Now, Mark, basically, if he tried to take any time for himself just to get away from that, which I'm sure is fucking exhausting, that would enrage her even more. And he really took the brunt of it. Judy took to injuring herself and then blaming Mark, including once rubbing her face on a rough stucco wall until it was bloody and then (gasps) accusing him of hurting her. Oh my God. Yeah. They divorced six months after they married. Later, Judy would claim that they never consummated their relationship. And Mark went back to Henry, the man he was with before he met Judy, and he stayed with him until his death 24 years later. I'm glad that they uh, got back together. Joey and Lorna, who at this time are 14 and 11, couldn't escape like Mark, though, and, and life for them was fucking hell. They lived in absolute fear of their mother's mood. Lorna pretty much hated her, and Joey was Judy's baby, so he kind of put up with it, but he hated being with his mom. Judy was a fucking nightmare. She would set closets on fire and like call the fire department. She would set whole rooms on fire when she was angry. Oh my God. Staff would quit understandably because she was so awful to work with and she would be physically and emotionally abusive towards them. Once attacking a housekeeper with a turkey leg. (gasps) A turkey leg? I know. That's just whatever she had on hand. A man named Tom Green took over her publicity. He was much younger, like 26, and he did everything to find someone to help her out, but everyone said no. She was so on the outs, even her self-proclaimed number one fan, Wayne Martin, turned her down when she reached out to him to help find out if a rumor was true. The rumor was that a group of Judy fans were trying to kill her to put her out of her misery. And she believed that this was true, and she reached out to this number one fan to see if he had any inside information. 
And he was kind of like over Judy at that point. He told Tom that he wanted to stay out of it. He said his Judy collection was like a sundial. It only recorded when she shined. And he wanted to remember her as she had been and not as she was now. Wow. Of course, Tom and Judy became lovers and they fucked a lot. She even gave him head under the table at a restaurant in LA while he ate his appetizer. Which restaurant? I don't know. It didn't say the name, but it was like an outdoor one in LA. An outdoor restaurant? Yeah. That's ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what was his appetizer? <laughs> the, the book just said, while well, he ate his appetizer. Well, and I was like, well, know. what is it? Shrimp Louie? <laughs> Oysters Rockefeller? <laughs> By the end of 1966, that thing was over and she had to sell her house because she was once again broke. While all this is going on, Liza Starr is really rising. At this point, she had a Tony Award and was earning $400,000 a year, but her primary role was Judy's mother figure. Judy bragged that she had protected Liza from the childhood that she had had, but that protection ended when Liza was an adult. So Liza was now taking on the role of the parent. Yes, Liza actually had her own at-home stomach pump to help (gasps) save Judy's life. So she constantly was pumping Judy's stomach. Like, no one has any idea how many times she probably overdosed. She also held Judy's feet once as Judy tried to jump out of a hotel window. Oh, my God. We have to do a Liza episode. Of course we're going to do a Liza episode. This sounds... I think we should do a Liza and a Lorna Luft, like get their all their perspectives because Lorna has a really good um, memoir as well. No, I'm gonna do the Liza episode. It's okay. coming. Well, I'll do the maybe I'll do the Lorna one the same month or something. 2021, <laughs> it's coming. Uh, anyways, I don't get too much into Liza because I know we're gonna do her. Yeah, Judy and Liza really were two peas in a pod, though, including their taste in men. In 1967, Judy played matchmaker and set Liza up with performer Peter Allen. Liza and Peter got married, and three weeks later, she found him in bed with a man. Now, this is three generations of women who all married gay gay guys, or found, or at least bisexual guys, because the grandmother, Liza, and Judy all did. Wow. Isn't that crazy like, or interesting? interesting? Yeah. yeah. So another connection here, Judy's ex, Mark, and Peter had fucked. <laughs> Including when he was in Australia with Judy during that horrible tour, because Peter Allen is Australian and he had a big act with his brother at the time. Uh, So they had fucked in Australia while he was married to Judy. Now, another role that got away from Judy was the screen adaptation of Valley of the Dolls. She was the inspiration for Neely O'Hara, obviously, but was way too old to play that part. So they wanted to cast her as the Broadway star Helen Lawson. It was the first unsympathetic, straight-up bitch character that Judy had ever attempted to play, and she could not handle it. She wanted to be liked and adored. After she was fired, she went to her dressing room, and she was eventually found by her old friend, Abby Mann, who was a writer-producer at MGM. He walked in on her with her dress pulled up above her head, collapsed on the floor, her pubic hair completely exposed, just passed out, because she tried to OD again after getting fired. Patty Duke actually would tell a story later in, I think, 2009 at the Castro Theater when they were screening um, 
the movie and she was talking about her autobiography, she felt that Garland had been deliberately exploited by the studio. She said that the producers may have felt justified in hiring her in the first place. They had gotten their PR mileage out of the situation. The Judy comeback stories had created all this publicity for the film. And after she wasn't working out, they found her expendable. So they mm. kind of got what they wanted from her. She's eventually replaced by Academy Award winner Susan Hayward. And Susan Hayward and, and Patty Duke actually have huge clashes on the set as well. So it's just a dramatic movie. That would be a good episode too. Behind I love the about. scenes. Yes. Yeah. Now, Liza would stay with Peter for three more years. And he actually was a great support system to her, especially with her um, wanting to break free of her mother. He really helped her with that. So I think, I think they were like lifelong friends. Judy eventually turns her attention to Lorna. After she hears Lorna sing at a school concert, she says, fuck Liza, this one will help me pay my rent. Whoa. Yeah. But soon both Lorna and Joey left their mom to go live with their dad. Joey, after his mom threw a butcher knife at him, not even realizing it was her son, like she was just in such a state of paranoia that she threw a butcher knife at her teenage son. Luckily, she was distracted when she met Mickey Deans, a hip young piano player who played piano at Jilly's and, an, and he also worked in a nightclub in Manhattan uh, that was called Arthur. It was a discotheque. <laughs> what year is this? This is 1968 or yes, yeah, 19, like the late 60s. So this is late 60s Manhattan clubs and discotheques. I love the discotheque Arthur. I don't know. It sounds great. So he meets Judy there. He's really young and cool. Like when you see pictures of them together, it looks like a middle-aged, like rich woman is marrying this hippie, like cool guy. Cause he's kind of cool and hot looking. So it's like a very odd couple, but they're like hit it off. They meet when a mutual friend of theirs asks him to deliver a package of amphetamines to Garland at her hotel. He goes up there, meets her two youngest children who are present during this drug deal, and he tells them he's her doctor. Now, now that is a meet cute, if I ever heard one. (laughs) So Judy is going back to London for an engagement at London's Talk of the Town. And in December of 68, she tells um, Mickey this. He said he's going to be so sad and miss her so much. And he proposes to her on the spot. She says yes, and they go to London together. So the Talk of the Town engagement starts off as a smash, but quickly devolves Uh, leading into another mini Melbourne moment where the crowd kind of turns on Judy and she's kind of a bitch to them. They get married in London in March. Literally no one shows up to their reception. They invite all of these friends, including a lot of famous people, but everyone is done with her at this point in her life. So it's like a really pathetic ceremony. They have like a huge cake for nobody. Like literally no one shows up to this wedding After that, she does a gig in Stockholm and she ODs there um, during their honeymoon, I guess. Mickey is determined to get her back on track, though. God bless his heart. Initially, it does seem like a good match because Judy needs this caretaker and he seems like he wants to take care and protect her. But obviously, this arrangement is impossible to maintain because it's too much it's exhausting for whoever is in this position that Mickey's in. He would try to sneak out like much like Mark would try to sneak out to have time to himself. And Judy would just be in absolute misery. Anytime he left her alone, she has um, one sort of triumphant show and that's in Copenhagen to which one reviewer says that he can't believe Judy's um, ability to always come back. She has 18 lives, but 
Judy at this point has used up 17 of those lives and the 18th is pretty much coming to a close. Judy had always struggled with with her weight, was now emaciated and barely eight. She described herself as the oldest woman in the world, um, thinking like she was probably about 412 years old. Like that's what she would say as a joke to people. That's how you feel at the end of your, uh, when you're hitting rock bottom, is you feel 400 years old. Yeah. She, I mean, the pictures from her last few months, she is fucking skinny as hell. Like it's awful to see. Uh, someone comments how she'll come back again. And she's like, I've bounced back too often. This spring is shot. Like she is done making matters worse. Judy is convinced that she has lost her audience, but the truth is that her audience is about to lose her on June 17th, 1969. Um, Mickey and her are returning from a trip to New York city. A friend, Bob Jorgen walks them to the, or takes them to the airport. He says to Mickey before they leave, take good care of her because she's dying. Wow. Like he could, he said his mother had just died and he just saw it. And Judy, uh, he had no idea how soon that would be though. On Saturday, June 21st, Mickey and Judy make plans to go out, but cancel last minute. The next morning on June 22nd at 10:40 AM, Judy receives a phone call, but had locked herself in the bathroom. So Mickey goes to the bathroom door and knocks on it. She doesn't answer. He continues to knock on it. She still doesn't answer. So he climbs out on the roof to look into the bathroom window and sees her sitting on the toilet, her head slumped down and her hands on both of her knees. He breaks into the bathroom and when he picks her up, he hears a soft moan and is relieved. But that was just the last bit of air escaping her lungs. He noticed her skin was discolored and blood was dripping from her mouth. The coroner would say later that she had been dead for six to eight hours when he found her. Wow. She died 12 days after her 47th birthday. At the inquest, coroner Gavin Thurston stated that the cause of death was an incautious self-overdose of barbiturates. Her blood contained the equivalent of 10 1.5-grain secondol capsules. He stressed that the overdose had been unintentional and no evidence suggested that she had died by suicide. Judy had all but explained her death several years earlier when she was explaining what probably had happened to Marilyn Monroe. She said, you take a few sleeping pills, you wake up 20 minutes later forgetting you had taken them, so you take a few more, and, and before you know it, you've taken too much. And that's basically what happened to her. Her autopsy showed no inflammation of her stomach lining, no drug residue in her stomach, and all of that indicated that she had been ingesting these over a longer period of time rather than like a huge handful in a single dose. So, uh, yeah, it was an accidental overdose. Other people said that she was on borrowed time cause she had pretty bad cirrhosis of the liver. So, um, another doctor thought that her eating disorder, which was likely bulimia had also contributed to her death. I mean, the bottom line is she was a fucking mess. Her body was just broken, right. uh, I think. Uh, her Wizard of Oz co-star Ray Bulger commented at her funeral, she was just plain worn out. After Garland's body had been embalmed, they returned to New York City on June 26, where they estimated 20,000 people had lined up to, play, to pay their respects to Judy. Um, this was like an all-night thing with an overflowing crowd. She had an open casket. So it was like a viewing people got to go in and see her. James Mason gave a eulogy at the funeral. Uh, he said, Judy's great gift was that she could wring tears out of hearts of rock. She gave so richly and so generously that there was no currency in which to repay her. Now, 
there's like a lot of pictures of newspaper um, from from her like memorial. They're so kind of crass though. Maybe we'll post one on our thing, but it's literally like titles like her last her final starring role is a hit. Like just like the grossest because so many people lined up to go like view her or pay their respects. So it's just like even in death, like they couldn't like leave her alone. It's just so awful. Now she is buried or her remains were interred in New York, but her children eventually have them moved to the Hollywood forever cemetery right by us in Los Angeles. She dies with a lot of debt, uh, her daughter, Liza Minnelli, works to pay off her mother's debt with the help of Frank Sinatra. Um, so they do that. Her kids basically get nothing. She has nothing to leave behind for them. They do, Lorna and her son Joe with Sidney Luff, their dad, eventually hold an auction of about 500 of her items and are able to raise a quarter of a million dollars for her heirs. In December of 1995, Lorna Luft released a cover of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which was a virtual duet with Garland, Ugh. like we talked about with Nat King Cole and Natalie. They did the same thing, and they actually had footage of Garland singing it to 11-year-old Lorna on a Christmas episode of her Judy Garland show. So it's even like has that added element. Whoa. And now Judy, I, I didn't get a chance to look at it, but I'm definitely going to check it out. In a 2020 interview, Liza was asked about her relationship with her mother, and she said, when I call on her, she's still there, and I call on her a lot. She'll say, ignore it a lot. She'll say, it's one opinion. Who cares? Just keep going. I'm so sad. It kind of broke my heart for Liza and the kids. Oh, my God. I mean, it is really trash. She had a very amazing, successful life, but also a very tragic life. And I do feel for her children so much. You had to watch their mother be so sick oh my God. for so long. Just like, I think you forget how young she was. So the whole time it's like she had gone through all of this. I was like, and she's 26 years right. old. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Right. She was so Because she's young. had kids. She's been married four times and like, right. Has a she did career. everything so escalated. And it's shocking when you find out she was only 47 when she died because she just looked so... She was tired. I mean... She was so tired. It's funny to think now, too, like, what my impressions as a child were of her. Like, I definitely probably thought she was, like, 80 when she died or something. Like... Right. And, like, yeah, just, like, I didn't didn't really know what my thoughts were about her because she was... Obviously, a lot of our childhoods, we knew who Judy Garland was as a young, you know, just from Wizard of Oz. Like, right. And then you find out more about her life slowly as you get older, and it's just sort of like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it was such a crazy reveal for me. For me, too, because you think Dorothy? Yeah. Like, I was like, why would anyone be mean to her? <laughs> like, it just was shocking to me to find out just how rough her life got. Uh, yeah, and how she, she was treated. She was a very sick woman. Yes, in a very sick industry. Just the worst combination. But yeah, she was so talented. Yeah, that it's just she was crazy. very talented. Um, wow, Desi, great two parter. I have like tears in my eyes right now. It's so sad. I just feel so bad for Liza. <laughs> I don't know why Liza focused on her because I feel like they're so similar. It's just such an obvious. Well, li- Liza had her own struggles. Yes. Uh, for sure. But both of them, you kind of see where it came from too. Yeah. Well, I mean, some people say alcoholism is a genetic thing. Absolutely. I think it is. Yeah. And they definitely had exasperating factors too. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> well, 
uh, that's that. So we'll post some pictures. Yeah, we'll post more pictures on our Instagram. Follow us there. We want to end the show by thanking our patrons for the past week. We also had a few patrons from the end of November that we accidentally put their names into a different folder. So I hope you can forgive us. <laughs> so we had Zoe, Cassandra, Jody, Jennifer, Tracy, Kendra, Monique, Karen, Carrie, Valerie, Carolyn, John, Dara, Maxine, Claire, Stephen, Phobone, Jacqueline, and Patty. Um, we also have a birthday message. Another birthday message. We do? Yes. So this is a birthday message to Stephanie. Her birthday was Sunday the 13th, so yesterday for us. Happy birthday, Stephanie. Happy birthday. Your daughter told us to say hey to you, so give her some credit. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Uh, birthday, Stephanie. Happy birthday. We hope you got some good cake, and you should have your daughter, Hillary, send us some pictures of the cake. We always want to see pictures of what you ate on your birthday. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So happy birthday. We hope you had a good one. Yeah. Uh, And that's the end of the show. You get the show closer. (laughs) We will see you all on Friday. Bye. Bye.